0: Alright, um, if you want to turn there in your, uh, copies of the Confession, we are in Chapter 7, I guess technically Section 3, but we're going to kind of, uh, not tonight, but before we're done, we're going to kind of be jumping back and forth between Sections 2 and 3, but for tonight, we're in Section 3, um, and I'll go ahead and start by reading that, and again, this is the, uh modern version, or the 21st century version, I think is what they call it, put out by Founders Ministries. Alright, it says, This covenant, referring to the covenant of grace, is revealed in the gospel. It was revealed, first of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation through the seed of the woman. After that, it was revealed step by step until the full revelation of it was completed in the New Testament. This covenant is based on the eternal covenant transaction between the Father and the Son... Concerning the redemption of the elect. Only through the grace of this covenant have those saved from among the descendants of fallen Adam obtained life and blessed immortality. Humanity is now utterly incapable of being accepted by God on the same terms on which Adam was accepted in his state of innocence. uh, innocence. Which of course that's because he fell and in him we fell and once you're fallen... You can't get yourself up. Um, So, this evening we're starting a positive consideration of the view of covenant theology that was taken by the majority of the signers of the 1689 Baptist Confession. And um, I think our discussion beforehand was a really good uh, prelude, maybe. Um, Because it's kind of what we were talking about just a moment ago this view has come to be known it wasn't known in their day but it has come to be known as 1689 federalism Um, commenting on the covenant of grace section 3 mentions that it was based on the eternal covenant transaction between the father and the son concerning the redemption of the elect and it was first revealed to humanity immediately following the fall Then the Confession explains it as being revealed to humanity step by step or the original language uh, of the Confession says by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. So that said, my intention is to go through these various biblical covenants to give you this positive presentation of 1689 uh, federalism so we're going to go through these biblical covenants in chronological order. Because the idea is that each covenant is building toward the covenant of grace by farther steps or step by step. So we take a step in this first covenant, and we take a farther step in the next covenant. That's kind of the idea. So tonight uh, we're going to be considering the covenant or if you prefer counsel of redemption which was discussed a couple of weeks ago as well. Well, we kind of discussed that last time when Jason was uh, teaching. So, we consider this one first because it's an eternal covenant transaction between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit concerning the salvation of God's elect. Before time began, this covenant was established, and in a sense, it's what creation is all about. And... um the running joke is I find a way to Ephesians, so let's go ahead and get that out of the way now. <laughs> uh, just to show that point, Ephesians 1. <clears throat> I'm just reading Ephesians 1, 3 through 3-10. with which He has blessed us in the beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. And we see this repeated again. According to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. So the idea there is that before there was time, before time began, before God created, um, before He said, let there be light, this was planned. And it wasn't just planned, oh, well, I'm going to save and elect people. It was planned that I'm going to unite all things in the sun. So that is to say, salvation <clears throat> is a Trinitarian work based on a covenantal transaction within the Godhead see I told you we're never going to get away from this doctrine of the trinity I told you uh, Christianity uh, through and through is a trinitarian religion and we were just talking about uh, this man before we started our lesson as well R.C. Sproul wrote this quote the covenant of redemption is a corollary to the doctrine of the trinity like the word trinity The Bible nowhere explicitly mentions it. The word Trinity does not appear in the Bible, but the concept of the Trinity is affirmed throughout Scripture. Likewise, the phrase covenant of redemption does not occur explicitly in Scripture, but the concept is heralded throughout. End quote. And the passage I just read is a really good example. Nowhere in there did you even see the word covenant. But the concept was there. Um... So this covenant was planned by the Father and it was accomplished by the Son who was sustained by the Holy Spirit. Charles Hodge uh, lists the conditions of this covenant and I'm quoting from him. Uh, He said, The Son was to assume our nature, humbling himself to be born of a woman and to be found in fashion as a man. This was to be a real incarnation, not a mere theophany, such as occurred repeatedly under the old dispensation. He was to become flesh, to take part of flesh and body, to be bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, made in all things like unto his brethren, yet without sin, that he might be touched with a sense of our infirmities and able to sympathize with those who are tempted, being himself also tempted. So in summary... First condition, Christ would be incarnate. Okay? Second, he was to be made under the law, voluntarily undertaking to fulfill all righteousness by obeying the law of God perfectly in all the forms in which it had been made obligatory on man. Now that's an important, that last phrase, don't go past that. He was to obey the law of God perfectly in all the forms in which it had been made obligatory on man. Here's the deal on that. There were multiple ways that it was made obligatory upon man. Because, well, we'll see this as we go on and on. Um, Each of the... I'm going to say following the uh, Noahic covenant anyway. Each of the covenants of the Old Testament have works involved. In order to uh, receive the covenant blessings in those covenants, some sort of obligatory law has to be followed. Um, And also prior to the Noahic covenant, the covenant of works, which I intend to talk about a little bit tonight, or you might call it the covenant of creation. But uh, most certainly that is a clear-cut one. Um, these other ones you might say that there could be some mixture in there between grace and works that one is just straight uh, do this and live don't do this and die (laughs) Um, so each of the Old Testament covenants has works included um, in order to receive the um, blessings of the covenant Christ undertakes to uh To fulfill the law in each of those as well as this covenant of redemption. So he fulfilled the law many ways. Alright now, number three. He was to bear our sins to be a curse for us. Offering himself as a sacrifice or propitiation to God in expiation of the sins of men. This involved his whole life of humiliation, sorrow, and suffering, and his ignominious death upon the cross under the hiding of his Father's countenance. What he was to do after this pertains to his exaltation and reward. And that's the uh, end of the quote for Hodge. But basically the idea there is he had to become incarnate, he had to earn righteousness for us, and he had to pay for our sins. That's basically, to summarize everything I just read, what he said, that's what had to be accomplished by Christ. So from this we see that the covenant of redemption is itself a covenant of works because it is a matter of keeping certain conditions, which we might call the law of the covenant, that earns the rewards of the covenant. And the rewards of this covenant are resurrection, exaltation, and a people for himself. It is within this covenant that the Son is appointed as our federal head and mediator. And as our mediator, he is our prophet, priest, and king. Something that we'll discuss in more detail at another time. So, uh, with all that being said, now let's look at the biblical reasons that we uh, would affirm this covenant of redemption. So, if you would, turn first to Isaiah 42. and um, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 1 through 9. Alright, so it says, Behold my servant. This is God speaking. Or we should say God the Father is speaking. Okay? Behold my servant. Who is this servant? The Son. Okay, so we already have In the first clause, we have the Father speaking, and He's speaking about His servant, who is His Son. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Trinitarian work. He will bring forth justice to the nations. That was verse (laughs) 1. Um... The former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Okay, so there we have the Father is essentially saying, This is what must be done. He's saying, It must be done by my servant, who is my son. And in order for him to be able to accomplish these things, and in fact, he's saying that he will do these things as if it's a certainty. In order for him to do these things, I will place my spirit upon him to sustain him. Okay? Alright, now, uh, Isaiah 49. are going to look at specifically verses 8 and 9. Actually, you know what? Let me back up. Let's just start with verse 1. Let's just start with verse 1. Okay. Uh, Alright, he says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. This is the servant of the Lord speaking. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him... See that's interesting because he says he's Israel, and now he's saying to bring Israel back. So Christ is the true Israel of God. That's what we learn from this passage. But um, he says to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says it is too light. Uh, yeah, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, the one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise princes and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord in a time of favor I have answered you in a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. See that was in the last passage right? I will give you as a covenant to the people. To establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritage, uh, heritages. Saying to the prisoners come out to those who are in darkness appear. They shall feed along the ways on all bare heights shall uh, be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. uh, Alright. One chapter over now. Isaiah (laughs) fifty. Let's pick up the verse 4. Again, this would be the servant speaking. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave... My back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of His servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on His God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from My hand. You shall lie down and torment so this passage would end up being applied by Christ to Himself. Um, and yeah, let's go ahead and flip over there just real quick. I think we can hold your spot in Isaiah because we're not done in Isaiah, but in Luke four. No, I'm confusing passages. This is from Isaiah 61. Sorry. <laughs> that, was, that was the wrong passage. My bad. Uh, Isaiah 53. Let's go back to Isaiah 53. Okay. Um, we're actually going to look at this entire chapter. Um, I know we read this a lot, uh, the suffering servant, but... Um, it's definitely relevant to this discussion. Um, it says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See that the Lord has has laid this on him. Yet, and get this part, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So there's the conditions of the covenant being met. Is The Father is the one who commands the Son to endure all of these things, even unto death. And it's the... Uh, the will of the Father to crush him. He has put him to grief. But he also, because of his obedience, earns the blessings of the covenant. He says, When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one My servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. So, he died, and then his days were prolonged here. And that's one of the blessings of the covenant resurrection. And he ends up seeing his offspring which is also one of the blessings of the covenant is he has people for himself. And he is exalted for his obedience. And uh, he makes righteousness uh, to cover the sins of the many. Um, The third blessing of the covenant. So you see all of that here just in this one chapter. Um, let me see. I may have left something out of my notes yes I did uh, go over to Isaiah 61 then we'll go to Luke because I still think this is relevant. <laughs> and this is going to kind of mention the role of the Holy Spirit in this to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And this is what Christ applies to himself in uh, Luke 4. Um, Starting, I guess, in verse 16. Uh, It says, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. <clears throat> Alright. Uh, and then one more passage. Uh, this one's in the New Testament. Philippians 2. Um, starting in verse 4. So Philippians 2, and we're going to read 4 through 11. Alright, it says, "...let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others." Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, we're talking about pre-incarnation, He is in um, heavenly glory with the Father. Um, being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, His incarnation, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Well, if you're being obedient, then you're being obedient to some rules, right? Or you could call it a law. So being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. So he was obedient to the end, to the point of death. He receives the covenant benefits now. Uh, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Of course this is to the glory of the Father because this was the Father's plan. To sum all things up in Christ. So we see that he is perfectly obedient in every way, even to the point of death, and he receives the benefits of the covenant. Resurrection, because how can he receive it if he's dead? Resurrection, exaltation, and his exaltation includes a people for himself. So Sam Renahan comments on this. These verses describe... The servant of Jehovah, the spirit of Jehovah, and Jehovah. Jehovah has equipped the servant for his task, and he has set himself to fulfill it completely and perfectly because he knows Jehovah will sustain him. Jehovah promises to supply his spirit to the servant to equip and sustain him for his mission. And we know that the Son did, in fact, keep and fulfill the obligations of this covenant. Just prior to his crucifixion, he prayed to the Father, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In other words, I have been obedient to you. I have fulfilled the mission you have given me to fulfill. Now give me the benefits that you promised. Consider the last words of Christ from the cross before he died. Um, This is in John 19. Uh, Verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, you see that repeated, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst, a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge uh, full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So with it being the case that the Son perfectly kept the covenant of redemption, the Father did raise him from the dead. And he has been exalted to the right hand of the Father now, And He has and He continues to save a people for Himself, thus receiving all of the benefits of the covenant. Um, A few more passages to consider on this. Um, The Great Commission, Matthew 28. So This is the resurrected Jesus that is speaking. So, um, in verse 19. No, 18. verse 18, he says, "...and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me." Or, in other words, I have been exalted. So resurrected Jesus is saying, I have been exalted. "...and on the basis of these two things, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit." teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. other words, go get my people. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, and that being, I'm working through you to get my people. Uh, Acts chapter 2. Um verses thirty two and thirty three. <clears throat> Actually I'm gonna go further than that. Go to thirty two through thirty six. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all are we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted. this Jesus, whom you crucify. All right, uh, and then one more passage Hebrews chapter 10, um, verses 12 through 14. So Hebrews 10, 12 through 14. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So, that is the covenant of redemption. What questions or comments or rebuttals do we have? (laughs) That was crystal clear, huh?
1: Well, I think uh, that last passage, if you read a little further, I think it, uh, uh, you know, 15, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, the Lord says. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds, and I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Um, you know, the the very fact that it is a Trinitarian work and everything pointed to that event. So, you know, the whole New Testament is constantly pointing us back to how the promises in the Old Testament find their yes and amen in Christ.
0: Well, and I'm I'm actually glad you brought that up too because I do want to just make sure you guys notice the vast majority of those passages that we read um, as far as telling what the covenant, uh, revealing the covenant of redemption, they came from the Old Testament. A few of them that I read came from the New Testament just showing how it actually was fulfilled. But the announcement of this, I guess you'd say, it was in the Old Testament. All right, anything else on that before we move on to the next
1: part? Alright. Um,
0: this brings us then to the covenant of works. Not a covenant of works. The covenant of works. Or also called the covenant of creation. Uh, we discussed this covenant in the last chapter of the confession, chapter 6. Um, but it may be helpful to review it uh, now. But um, I'm not gonna looking at our time. I'm not gonna read the passage. I'm gonna tell you what it was since we have already covered this. Um, but the elements of this covenant are contained in Genesis 2:4 through 3:24. Okay, you want to go back and read the passage, but it's kind of long. Um, I'm just gonna review what we see in there since we've already gone over this before, just to make sure that it's everybody's on the same page about it. So you've got the contracting parties. You've got God, and you've got Adam, and in Adam, his seed. Because Adam's the federal head, right? You've got conditions of the covenant. Keep the law of creation and the special ordinance to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the law of creation is going to be the moral law. So that's that's required whether there's a, a, a covenant in place or not. Just by our mere existence, we are obligated to obey our Creator as creatures. Uh, but And that is isn't uh, included in this covenant. But it would be there even if it wasn't this covenant. So is that
1: explicit? Is what explicit? <clears throat> the... the uh, uh, is it implied or explicit as far as the uh, covenant? Uh, as far as keeping that law, as pertains to the covenant.
0: Yeah, uh, I think it's implicit. There you go. I think it's implicit. Um, the other thing is the special ordinance. So this is: do not eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You yeah, may eat best. of any of the other trees. Do not eat of this tree. Yeah,
1: because that's. That's the the uh, uh, the the one. That's the uh, requirement that is constantly uh, right. And that the... part is not
0: necessarily a part of our creation. That's the special ordinance I know. that's included. Right. Um, and the reason I will explain this. So the reason I think that the uh, the law of creation or the moral law is implicitly implied in there okay. is because. Um, just think about it this way. If I violate that, then I have sinned. Yeah, and and I, can't, I can't keep a covenant of works as a right, sinner. And,
1: and that's, where, uh, that's where Eve fell down, was that basically what she did is she did not believe, or she uh, indicated that she did not believe because basically Satan was able to uh, tempt her. Uh, and basically what happened is that uh, that's the unbelief. That uh, uh, everybody's now paying for.
0: Well, yes, but then you, you've got the well, Adam. Adam Adam. Is the, Adam,
1: <laughs> Adam is the.
0: Uh, I, I think we got to look to him head, head first because he's a the federal, federal head. head. Yeah, right. But I do agree that uh, sequence of events one led to the other. Yes, I, I would agree with that. Right. Um. Where was I Oh yeah. I'm um, sorry. No, you're good. Uh, the rewards and the curses. So we, we, we've got it established. The conditions are keep this law and this ordinance. So the rewards uh, would be eternal life for obedience. and The curse is going to be death for disobedience. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Right? And the purpose of it, um, Sam Waldron rightly asserts, the purpose was to bring Adam to a higher existence than that in which he was created. And I would add to what Waldron said that uh, this covenant also was to uh, establish a place for that to be fulfilled. Um, because the covenant has a context. So it's a covenant that's made in a place, right? It's in Eden. Um and I'll get into that some more in just a second so the circumstances uh, Sam Renahan comments on the location of the covenant being in Eden he said quote Eden was not man's initial and natural location Adam was formed then Eden was prepared and we saw that when we went over that, that God created the man and then he placed him there um Uh, Then Adam was placed in Eden. The the description of Eden tells us the purpose for which Adam was placed there. The garden contained the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's in uh, Genesis 2.9. And Adam was placed in this garden to work and keep it. That's Genesis 2.15. So the biblical description of Eden makes it a temple of God's special presence. There are numerous features of the text of Genesis 2. That mark this out for the reader, such as its eastern designation, its mountaintop location, its rivers, its trees, its precious stones, and its metals as indicators of its temple character. And all that's described in the passage I mentioned. These features do not seem especially significant on their own, but when compared with the way that later scriptures employ the same imagery, one finds that later temples are described in language that evokes the imagery of Eden. Eden was a prototypical temple template from which later scriptures draw their imagery and language. And that's the end of the Renohan quote. Um, Renohan goes on to make the point that uh, Adam functioned within this uh, temple as prophet, priest, and king under the covenant of works. That's what uh, being a mediator or a federal head entails. We, we, when we use those three things, we think of Christ. Because we're in the covenant of grace. And, and he's those things in the covenant of grace. But in this covenant of works, um, whereby we fail, Adam held that position. So as prophet, um, and, and again I'm borrowing from Renohad. uh As prophet, in Scripture, receiving the word of the Lord directly constitutes one a prophet. As Moses, the prophet received... Le, the Levitical commands and relayed them to the Levitical priests. So that's Numbers 3 5-6 uh, through six. So God declared his decrees in a personal way to Adam, giving him the most fundamental qualification of prophetic commission So he directly spoke to Adam Adam was the one that was supposed to be speaking to Eve. It was his job to tell Eve and his descendants the word of God Now priest, Adam as priest, um, again from Renohan, Adam was placed in the garden sanctuary of Eden, the temple of God's presence. Adam was commanded to guard and keep the garden. This temple task must be understood in priestly terms. So that's what a priest does. Um, A priest uh, guards the sanctuary, guards the holiness of God, and uh, intercedes. is a go-between, basically. Um, And then Adam is king. So again from Renohad. Adam's role was kingly. Adam was to bring creation to consummation, being fruitful and filling the earth with a holy and God-honoring seed. He was to imitate God as a kingdom builder and attain the rest that awaited completion of such a work. The local reach of Eden was to extend to the universal reach of all creation. Adam was commanded to rule the world, king of a covenanted kingdom. That's what that whole be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and take dominion, that's what all that's about. Um, As far as the sacraments of the uh, covenant, there is some debate on this. We talked about this. There's some debate. Uh, Some believe there were as many as four, uh, and that would be the two trees, Eden or paradise, and then the Sabbath, if you take that view. Others hold that there was only one, the tree of life. And there are various views between those two extreme views. Uh, Louis Burkhoff comments, though, that the last opinion is the most prevalent one. And I'll also tell you I agree with the last one. I think it was just the tree of life. Um, The last opinion is the most prevalent one and would seem to be the only one to find any support in Scripture. And that's why I believe that. we should not think of the fruit of this tree as magically or medically working immortality in Adam's frame yet it was in some way connected with the gift of life in all probability it must be conceived of as an appointed symbol or seal of life consequently when Adam forfeited the promise he was debarred from the sign quote. Um, and I'll just mention this as well kind of in passing, the first historical promise of the gospel was made in the midst of the pronouncements of the covenant curses once this covenant was broken. Um, actually, let's read that. That's too important to just skip over. Go to Genesis chapter 3. We've got enough time to read that. Um Genesis 3 verse 15 and God is talking to the serpent so he is pronouncing curses uh, for these sins Okay, and he is talking to the serpent who deceived the woman I do think it is really cool that the first historical announcement of the gospel was to the devil I think that's pretty awesome because that's the person uh, whose scroll, uh, skull was to be crushed so it's an announcement of I'm going to kill you <laughs> But he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. So he doesn't say I'm going to put enmity between you and this covenant head that just failed. I'm going to put enmity between you and the one you deceived. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So that's the initial pronouncement of the gospel message right there. And we see this theme throughout the rest of Scripture, really, about um, the enemies of God and their skulls being crushed. And even where Jesus was crucified, it's called the place of the skull, right? So we see that all the way throughout the rest of Scripture that we have this idea of the Holy Seed crushing the skull of the uh, evil seed and the evil seed bruising the heel of the uh, Holy Seed. Alright, I think I can fit this in very quickly because I don't have a whole lot to say about it. (laughs) Uh, The next covenant is the Noahic covenant. Very little to say about this one, but this is not a salvific covenant. I will say that. Um, However, it serves the purpose of the fulfillment of God's promise of salvation in the garden. We just read the promise. There's got to be a world and there's got to be people in order for the promise to be fulfilled. So it does serve that purpose. In this covenant, God renewed the cultural mandate. uh, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Take dominion. Um, And he promised the preservation of the world for the fulfillment of the covenant of redemption and the promise of the skull-crushing seed of the woman to come. And so... I'm just going to read the passage, and that'll be it on the way of covenant. I told you didn't have a whole lot to say. Uh, Genesis chapter 9. <clears throat> Starting in um, verse 7. So uh, Genesis 9 verse 7 and you, uh, and he's not just talking to Noah, he's talking to Noah and his sons, and you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, bear in mind, we are also Noah's sons, so this covenant's with us as well. Behold, And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So again, we have the preservation of the world. And of humanity, and we have the cultural mandate. Um, not only is it preserved, but let's expand it. So that's the Noahic covenant, and those are um, grouped
1: together. The covenant Does expand, the, Let's expand it. Is that uh, be fruitful and multiply? Yes. Okay.
0: Um. So this Adamic covenant. Hmm, a big <sighs> Hold on. It's a big bug it is um, this idemic covenant this Noahic covenant are grouped together as covenants of creation because basically what's going on here is we have the world is established and it is established that it's not going away until God's purposes are fulfilled okay alright any questions, concerns, or rebuttals on that or the covenant works, I kind of grouped
1: them together common grace uh, in the way covenant. you see the establishment of common grace rain shines you know falls on the just and the unjust right. the sun shines on the just and the unjust and it's kind of a, appropriate that those who rebel against God's design choose to use the rainbow as their symbol oh god yeah <laughs> I mean, it's- Kind of appropriate because it's common grace if you're allowed to. There's a continue re- the rebellion. really neat book called "The Temple and the Church's Mission" by GKV. Yeah. That's good. That book goes right along with each one of where these covenants are placed and how each one of those are a uh, a temple and the priests. And you see it, he writes it out of Revelation and goes back to Genesis and then through Noah all no the way down through Christ. What's yeah. the name of this again? The Temple and the Church's Mission. Awesome right. book. Sounds like it. Yeah. I've never even... Yeah. I mean, I know who Bill is, but yeah. I've never read that book. He also has a sermon series on that You can listen to it if that would be better for you. If you wanted to do that. Awesome. Okay. <clears throat> but you kind of touch on some of the themes that he brings up with that too? Right? Yeah. But it, he 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 blinds it all the way through, and it's a, it's an interesting yeah, it sounds like it something you don't see you know a lot of people pointing out right okay that's one of the the, the riches of reform theology is if, yes. you get to see these themes all the way it all the way through yeah sectional dispensationalism that's a lot of it. <laughs> Alright, uh, anything
0: else before we close? Alright, if not, then we'll go ahead and pray and uh, we we'll be done. Um, I will, before I say that though, I do want to let you know um, I'm not going to be here next week, but when we pick up, when I come back, um, I do want us to go through the
1: old covenant. Um, that's including multiple covenants when I say that. Um, Is anybody going to be here next week? Are we just not going to have it? Or what? Is Jason going to teach? Or? I believe Jason's going to teach. Yeah.
0: All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the privilege of coming together as your people and your people in Christ and um, to be able to study your word through the lens of the confession. Um, We pray that uh, as we consider the things that we've talked about tonight and um, continue to go through these things in the future, that um, you would guide our thoughts and that you would guide our words and ultimately that you would guide our hearts into the truth. Um, Anything that we uh, may have said that's inaccurate tonight, I pray that you would correct it. certainly don't believe that that was the case but if it were I pray that you would correct it and I pray that you would guide us um, moving forward and we are very thankful that you chose an eternity past to send Christ to accomplish righteousness and to pay for the sins that we have committed and we pray that you would help us to live obedient lives not as, um, not as a, a covenantal law or a law for life, but as a law of obedience because we are saved. And uh, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.